Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring Eric and Julia Leewald talking X-Men, the animated series. I just, I've taken a crap load of notes, so hopefully you're here for a while. I've read this three times. I've got my sticky <laughs> notes prepared for what I need to chat about. So yeah, I've got, uh, me too. Look at that. <laughs> Two birds of a stone. I'm so glad you got that. That but, makes me very happy. But before we start, uh, before I start with any interview, I ask the same question to all my guests. And this will be a two-parter because each one of you hopefully will be able to answer. Where did your sense to storytell come from? You mean just in, in general? Uh, with oh. uh, with with creating uh, TV shows, uh, storytelling with script writing, storytelling X Men the animated stories uh, uh, series. Where did that come from? Are we are we recording now? We are. Oh, oh. crud! Okay, oh. well, hello. <laughs> you, want, you, want, you want me to go first? Yeah, 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 right. yeah. So I'll let him um, here. Well, my uh, my dad used to read to me at night. Uh, he was he was a kind of displaced person from Europe. You know, war refugee, Germany, Argentina, up here, and English was like his fifth language. He was a professor of languages, and so he loved reading. He loved reading to me, and he loved classical mythology. And so I'd get uh, weird, and, and he also had no sense of protecting children from things that are too intense. <laughs> so I, I, you know, at four or five years old, I'd get ferocious Greek and North myths, or I'd get Alice in Wonderland, or I get you know, who knows what, you know what fun things would come out of his brain. But so he was a frustrated writer. And, uh, uh, as I think a lot of academicians are. And so I grew up very much respecting that and, and having a sense of storytelling. He loved movies too. When he was a refugee in Argentina for like a nickel, you could go down and watch three movies. So, uh, so he got, gave me my love of movies. So growing up, um, I, I read not, the way crazy right you know people that read all the time do but i read a fair amount and then in, uh, in my teens i just really fell in love with with movies and going to movies and programming movies at college and so it was a combination of his love of intense stories and then my discovering uh, movie and tv storytelling and so i think that that's kind of where the where the mixture comes and when it came out to hollywood uh, there was this weird thing that happened. Uh, you discover that screenwriters often don't get to write m much of what's on screen. <laughs> it, the, the directors love to take over 80% of it. So what they like is really simple, mostly dialogue with a few indications the rest of the actors. But in animation, then this is just dumb luck because I didn't plan to be in animation. They let you basically let you be a much more of a filmmaker and tell the entire story and choreograph things because you've got a bunch of artists that have to draw all that stuff that have to draw 900,000 images to tell a story. And so you've got to be much more tactile and specific in your storytelling. And I think so partly my dad, partly the movies and partly um, just the demands of animation to be more to be more visual and 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 physical than 
than in writing for, say, a sitcom, where you could just basically write dialogue and, and gags and get and, and and get away with it. And yourself, Julia? Uh, for me, just in terms of how I ended up here, it was just loving loving to read as as a younger person. Um, love TV, love movies. I, I grew up in Texas and went to college at Texas Tech University. How in love, but woohoo! Um, and it was my senior year, and I was planning to go into, um, you know, pl- apply for med school or law school or something like that in Texas. And a friend one day just said, "Well, you like to write," because I was always writing in my spiral notebooks. You know, they pay people to write on Hollywood. You know, I'm going to go do a student teaching in a place called Santa Paula. Why don't you come out to Los Angeles? It never occurred to me that you could move somewhere and go be where an industry was. And that's what got me out to Los Angeles. And then just the white hot passion of trying to uh, get my foot in the door as a writer. And, and my first opportunity after a long slog was also an animation. And that it, we met at uh, Disney Afternoon when we both got when we were both working there. And it was a wonderful time. And I have loved it. I've loved I love writing still. I'm still doing it. Uh, it's just that's that's kind of the thing that kind of got me doing it and got me into it. And I've been perpetually grateful. Well, your story uh, starts before X-Men, the animated series series. You both were on shows, Chippendales. You wrote for Darkwing Duck, which was a very massive uh, show, a good show in our household as well. You, you, you sort of were uh, a staple in most of the shows growing up as children in the eighties and the nineties. But the reason we're here today is to talk about the show that uh, spawned a generation of shows and movies, the X-Men, the animated series. Um, So I got to ask the question because you write in your book previously on X-Men. You didn't know what you were walking into when you walked into that first meeting. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely no clue. Like somebody saying, okay, you want to... To, to manage uh, the, uh, you know, Montreal hockey team, but you haven't played hockey, right? Okay, we got only tens of millions of people waiting to find out if you know what the hell you're doing. But uh, <laughs> now I, obviously uh, we knew storytelling and we, I read some comic books, but really, I and the other guy, my friend from the University of Tennessee, Mark Edens, who had to lay out the first couple seasons of stories and figure out how to stage this thing, we really did not know the X-Men. And we really had to learn it fast. And uh, luckily, there were people, producers, artists, that knew them backwards and forwards and advisors from Marvel. So we couldn't go too far wrong in terms of as we learned them, doing things that were out of character or out of the spirit of the, of the books. I want to set the stage here, though, too. This is 1992. In February. February. <laughs> it was late at night, and there was no internet. Well, there might have been some inklings of the internet, but it would take you 45 minutes to um, connect and, <laughs> and download anything anywhere. There was no Google. It, hadn't, it didn't exist. So when you got that call, there was no quick way to catch up before you went in for that and first So yeah, meeting. we just we just had to bluff real hard <laughs> because this was like we obviously it was going to be a very cool job, and I I'd written on a bunch of, of series as you said at Hanna Barbera and Disney, and I'd run a, a season of the Beetlejuice series, 
but I'd never been handed a network show to develop and be the showrunner on. So there was that great possibility. I didn't care about the money. It's just, I, I was with people that I knew and trusted at Fox, the Sydney Iwaner and Margaret Les, who I'd done the year with, with them at Beetlejuice and mm -hmm. knew that they really wanted, contrary to 90% of the people in the town, they wanted your best stories. They wanted your most intense stories. They, they, it just, they made it a pleasure to work. So I thought, oh my God, obviously this is going to be a pretty big show. There are all these people interested in it. And it's with my favorite people to work with. And I get to, you know, set up the world. So that was, all that was incredibly exciting. I didn't want to take a, a wrong step forward. But I think since I didn't know them that well, I think if I'd, known them reasonably well i might have been scared because there was 30 years of stories and <laughs> and all sorts of people with attitudes about fans with attitudes i didn't know that i didn't know that what i was stepping into i just thought i was given this very cool setup with mutants and with the society they had to deal with i was given like the coolest setup that i could think of for storytelling and told to do intense stories with it so that was i was too focused on that and too ignorant of the world I was stepping into to be as scared as I should have been. And you made a conscious choice not to rely heavily on the comics that were put out beforehand. You decided to make it a unique uh, story by itself to just tell the story the way you want to tell it and not rely so heavily on it. Do you believe that is why it works so well that you took it in another direction compared to what people were anticipating? I, th I think so. I think there was a, a wonderful balance. Half the people were crazed fanboys who knew it backwards and forwards, mm -hmm. and half of us didn't know it. And so those of us that didn't know it, all we were focused on was the quality and intensity of the stories. And the other people were focused on making sure it was as X-Men as it could be. I was I was thought about that you know I grew up and Julia and I both loved the original Star Trek, and if I'd been handed a Star Trek show to do, I would just melt it down. <laughs> and, and I, Not that we would now. Yeah, Not and I would have second guessed myself and fifth guessed myself and tenth guessed myself, and I was able to be much more decisive. And Mark was the same way, who, who was setting up the stories with me. All we were we stared, we were learning these characters and said, what would be the coolest story we could tell about Storm? And that was the only agenda we had. We didn't have, oh, but don't you remember back in you know issue 174 where so-and-so and so-and-so and her brother and her, you know, her stepfather? None of that was in our head. All it was was give us this character and what can what's the best we can do in 22 minutes? Who who can we use from the you know from the Marvel Universe? And how can we throw it around? And we, we were fairly experienced at telling animated stories by then. Um, so, you know, and, and make it animation friendly, you know, all those things that I had. But the agenda of, of, of telling the stories that were already there wasn't in our head. And I think that gets in the way, in the way of people sometimes. And also uh, point out that, yes, it's mutants and there's big stuff blowing up, but uh, an imperative from you as, as the showrunner was, we're telling the most human stories we can with these characters. They happen to have these superpowers, but what is the thing on the human scale that it is driving them forward? Yeah, and luckily, Sydney Iwaner, who was 
my absolute boss on this. Every word, every comma went through him, every bit of artwork. He's, I don't know how he had the hours in the day because he, <laughs> he did it for Spider-Man. He did it for Batman. He did it for us. He did, he did it, for, it for The Tick. He, he did it for seven or eight of these shows that- On Fox Kids. On Fox Kids that at once. And, but you know, he was there and we would go over everything. He felt the same way. He, there's a, there's a side to comic book writing that is, that's kind that's, I don't think lends itself very well for storytelling. It's, it's kind of a little kid thing. Like who's bigger, who's stronger than the other? Oh, I'm bigger. No, I'm bigger. No, my Ray is stronger. No, my thing is stronger. So it becomes, is a, we, we were, so it was, we become kind of a, a professional wrestling match. And that's cool, and you got to have that part of it. It's like you got to have gunfights in a western. But the thing that made us love westerns when we were growing up wasn't the gunfights; it was the character studies. It was who is going through this and what is it doing to him. So we were, so we tended to lose some of the. You know, uh, can the thing beat the Hulk? Uh, fascination and focus more on what is the the thing uh personal tragedy this week and and so it's so it's just it was just a, a choice we made because there's enough stuff in the comics it could be non-stop action it could be non-stop confrontation and battle and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and you could lose this, the characters in the story so we tended to take the action for granted and they'd make sure we put some in but we were focusing on the we when we were working hard and sweating, we were sweating over the character moments. We weren't sweating over if enough buildings blew up. Now, one of the uh, big things that was taking place in the 90s was the rise of standards and practices of what you could and couldn't put on uh, TV. Um, and on kids programming, on children's programming. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But yet. Yeah. X-Men, the animated series, had a, had the storytelling, and you guys did it so well, where you talked about adult issues to children. It was not a story that, uh, not a series that talked down to children. It was a series that talked to children about these things that were going on. I mean, I, I'm just going by what I've read in your book. You had stories that range from quotes from Beast from uh, Shakespeare, where kids might not know who Shakespeare is. You had uh, quotes, uh, you had uh, deals with divorce, with death in the first season of Morph, within the first two episodes of Morph. So when you were doing this, was Standard and Practices looking at you and say, you can't do this. This is not what you can do to kids. And you're, I mean, uh, the yeah. president of Fox Kids, Margaret, sort of said, you know what? We're going to do it because that's the way we need to do it. This is one of those rare times when you're going to hear people who worked in places like this speak speak well of the various executives in charge and in place. That that's not oh nice mug. That's not often the case. Um, but started at the top with Margaret Lesh, who was made president of Fox Kids very shortly before Fox Kids um, before X Men even happened. It's again going back in time. There was here in the United States we had ABC, NBC, and CBS as our three major networks. And then you had syndicated channels around the country, depending on where you lived. But not usually that many. Usually you maybe have three or three four, four channels total in your in your part of the state, in your in your corner of the world. You, that's all you have. And then suddenly, so this Fox one was a was a little bitty upstart. We called it. A, it was calling itself what a, 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 a weblet. A weblet, because it was pulling together different syndicated channels, saying, "Let no sign on with us, and we'll become 
a fourth network. So Fox Fox hadn't existed that long, and Fox Kids had existed for an even shorter period of time. But Margaret Lesh, to her undying credit, when she came on board, was determined to um, to do stuff, you know, the right way, if you want to look at it that way. And then with the hiring of Sidney Iwaner as her second in command. Mm-hmm. And then Avery Coburn, that's the woman we all have to give credit to. She was the person in charge of broadcast standards and practices. And when Eric was talking to me about the plans he and Mark were, were putting down for the first couple episodes, the two-parter and I'm the Sentinels, and that it required heroic sacrifice to show that you know there's consequence, we're gonna we're gonna have to kill a character. <laughs> My jaw dropped. It's like, well, let me know how that works out for you, because it never has before. That kind of intensity, that kind of truthful yeah. storytelling on kids' TV up till that time. Yeah, part of I mean, the majority of it was those three people allowing us, asking us, begging us to do as intense stories as we could. Part of the reason that the stories are emotionally intense is that we couldn't do certain physical violence on a kids' show. There couldn't be sex. There couldn't be blood. There couldn't be something stabbing somebody. That, there couldn't be gunshots, and you, you, there are certain things that we just were not allowed to do. So we had to crank up the emotions to keep the drama going. Um, the example we give is when we did the Young Hercules show, uh, the live action, the live version. action one yeah. with Gosling. And at the same time, they're doing Hercules and Xena, which were hour-long shows, which are almost like R-rated movies, <laughs> which were you know lots of sex, lots of deaths, lots of blood and swords going everywhere and we were given a half hour on, on saturday morning with at with basically some of the same production people much small a much smaller budget but still told make the make the stories as dramatic as what we're doing with the adult shows but you can't do this long laundry list of stuff and on that there's a perfect example on that uh series which we were very proud of but it's also for Fox, so it's also for Sydney and Margaret. So they wanted it to be as intense as possible, but we the we had a different statistics person on that. That's right. And that one was much more of a fight, and we had a lot of things that we felt we lost that they didn't let us do. That this BSP person just said, "Look, I'm sorry, that's a primetime thing. That's just not something that we're going to let kids see in live action." And so. So we actually had more freedom in X-Men than we have had in any other series we've ever worked on. We were mentioning Mummies Alive. That was a, 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 a syndicated series, mm-hmm. and there were various investors in it. And one of the investors in it wanted the show to be much, much younger. And so there were some serious creative battles in that where we wanted to make it more intense and more heavily uh, Egyptian and more just more complex and challenging, and she would just you know it was she, that is not what she was looking for. So it was, it was there was bad a bad mixture of teammates in the show where something that ended up looking beautiful and mm-hmm. we're still very proud of it would have been older and more complex if we'd had a, a different partner. Oh wow! Now but, one of the issue one of the uh, things when, when researching this and listening to past interviews with you uh, you talk about a famous scene uh, one of the most famous scenes for one of your directors is when uh, Wolverine punches Scott 
and yeah. there was an attack on like the people one of the executives did not want this correct that was a huge deal yeah, yeah. especially for children's broadcasting yeah uh, because of what's called imitatable behavior they they don't want to show situations and things happening that kids can then turn around and do you can't you don't want to show someone sticking something in an electrical socket because you don't want that to be something a kid yeah, can do. Because numbers get sued over that. Yes, they do. And and child psychologists are and there are various people overlooking the shoulders of mm -hmm. uh, television networks trying to pr protect the interests of children. And so that was that was an interesting point. I mean, if if you'll notice, Wolverine kind of gets scratched early in one episode. And that was the only time we were able to show any blood on him. We're still trying to figure out what his healing how, powers how, were how at that, that time. Yeah, how that one got through. But at first, the note was back from broadcast standards. No, you can't have Wolverine hit him. Uh, it's just something we don't do in children's programming. Showing one, especially you know, like one good guy punching his friend. And we went back and forth and. We just said, look, this is it's this is not gratuitous. He's not enjoying this. We're not this is an expression of his grief, not of his sadism, not of his aggression. This is something he just he's he's so upset at the loss of his friend that he can't help but do this. And if we pull this, if we don't if we just have him growl and say, Oh, you're a bad boy, you know. That's not going to have just we need to have him punch him, please. And and the point, too, being Wolverine and Cyclops, you've got two mutants. You know, Wolverine wasn't punching a defenseless human, uh, technically, but also because he wasn't using his full powers at that point. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't he didn't he didn't kill him. He didn't right. stab him. He didn't stab but him. Still, the point was never again did we were we allowed to do that. And we were allowed to do that with that one time because he was grieving over the loss of his friend. And that, that was, she was able to see that that was the reason for that in, in, the, in the episode, in mm -hmm. that scene, in that moment, not some, oh boy, wouldn't it be fun to see these guys punching each other out? It so wasn't again, a fun thing, it was a grief thing, and she got that. All credit to the folks in charge, because yeah. they let that happen. So we'll, we'll go back to that meeting of in February here because we, well, there's so much to unpack in this book that like I can't do it justice with all the, the amount of time that I have. So I apologize if we run a little bit late. Um, but you were given from February to September to get this show on the air, ready for production. And you had to cast, you had to get the designers, you had to do your research on this show. How did you pull it off? <laughs> like, like, were you like stressed to the like bone? You know, well, first of all, we kind of, <laughs> we kind of didn't pull it off. I mean, we, it, there was, it was such an ambitious show. And this is something that people were kind of not quite admitting to each other as they went forward. <laughs> it was on a medium, you know, a modest budget. It was modest. a huge budget show. It was, it, sh it should have had this, as big a budget as Batman or, or a Disney afternoon show. It should have had the time. You know, it should have had an extra year. All these things is what it should have had. People just say, oh, they're so excited. They finally got the right team together, and we want to have it out by September. And so I think they were all you know, kidding themselves a little bit. The way I kept saying was that there was a certain uh, uh, demarcation of responsibility. All I was, you know, uh, there were other people that were overseeing the art. There were other people, the person that's probably going crazy is Sydney because he's overseeing everything. <laughs> but there are other people that 
are hands-on producing the art. There's other people that went to Toronto where they recorded it all in Canada and, and cast it. I mean, we would get the audio cassettes. That's how the snail mailed audio cassettes and comment. Yes, this guy, these are our three finalists for, for professor X, you know, we like this about this one. So we got our, our opinions in, but there were other people putting in the weeks necessary to get the cast right, to get the look right, to get to get all the other aspects of this together. And even then, the budget had, had been such that when we got, the, as it says in the book, you get the first animation back, you know, late July, uh, and it needs to be ready for some, go on the air in September. And it's it's terrible. It's It's half what it needs to be. Whatever they were promising, they weren't delivering. And it was, as they said, it was a Marvel. They were, we made big Marvel sized stories and it was little bitty Saban sized budgets. Yeah. And the, the two did not mix. So my responsibility ended when we finished the 13th uh, script. And I could really kind of just, okay, I've done what I need to do. You guys all love the 13 scripts. Uh, you people, all the the artists were still drawing like crazy. They were still recording. They were still they're starting to edit, and and so there are all the other people doing this and hanging in there, and that's so so showrunner in animation. It tends to be a little more diffuse. There it tends to be more all these different teams of people, and yes, my opinion matters. But if push came to shove, uh, you know the the, the producers would would choose let's say choose a design or ch or or choose the uh, the cut of an episode and if I had time to be in on it usually the way we work we're cranking the scripts and while they're animating and while they're editing what's been animated they've already told us to start writing on the next batch of scripts so they're they're kind of using us as you know, more as the writing tools rather than the supervising everything tools. Thank God. If that had, if, if I had to be responsible for anything more than scripts, it just would have been too much. But, and a reminder, again, I'm the one who keeps harping on these things, but in 1992, uh, September uh, was a huge deal for the major networks because that was when you had your fall rollout, your, fall, your, new, your brand new season episodes for your brand new shows and your returning favorites. Yeah. The world today is very different in terms of how you know uh, things are. I don't. I, I know there is still a bit of a you know big fall season premiere thing, but I can pick up my phone and find something you know, or you can we can do this here on on the computers, or we can do it on the TV. There, there. It's a different way of releasing material. September now. was important. September was she a big. And deal. Margaret had been dreaming for ten years about getting Batman and X Men out in mm -hmm. September and together. And they had the time and the money for Batman. They just didn't have the time and the money for us. And so, but it ended up being wonderful for us because we had four months to polish things up and spend the extra money. But that's because Margaret but Mar said, this, yeah. I'm not going to air yeah. this series now. I'm she she could have. Nine out of the 10 other executives just said, look, okay, we took our shot at it. This is the best we can get for the money and the time. Throw it on the air. It'll be over with in thirteen in one season, and we'll get on to something else. Yeah, uh, didn't work. You know, we rolled the dice. It didn't work. Screw it. And she didn't say that. She said, "I'm 
I'm giving this four extra months and we're going to make this good. And so when it came out in, when in it January. formally premiered in January, 93, everything else by that point, miraculously had begun doing its reruns because you know, more than 13 weeks had passed. And suddenly X-Men was one of the few things that's that a was brand new, but B had been teased so brilliantly in her decision to say, Hey, we're going to do a sneak peek. You know, and sold the rest of the Fox channels yeah. on saying, okay, in September we'll do a sneak peek, but you better have something good for us come January. Yeah, because all those Fox channels for four months had to show repeats of old shows instead yeah, of this space. new thing, which they'd been promised. Yeah. And probably lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, in, in ad revenue because right. they didn't have the cool new show. But she said, it's worth the sacrifice. Take my word. And she was right. So, thank but. She didn't. She didn't know that. Didn't she, know. She, she just looked at us and said, "Look, I. That's the argument I made, but I honestly, I just couldn't have. I just couldn't have aired how bad it looked. Yeah. Uh, in September, so able to get episodes one and two fixed, but three was a, a wash. Yeah. And, and because it's a sequential show, episodic, yeah. you know, one after another, you didn't want to start. You didn't want to show one, two, and four. You had to show episodes one, two, and then episode three, and then episode four. Yeah, you didn't you, you didn't want to have to show one and two four or five times in a row <laughs> until you got the rest of them ready. Yeah. Uh, so do so you that, remember yeah. that first time you got that final product of episode one and two together, and you, after the re, the edits, after the revisions, and you finally said, "Okay, this is what we were destined to put out." Yeah, you know it. it it's almost it was more like a relief thing. Yeah. <laughs> once, once, once we'd written this, the, those first two scripts and imagined it was okay, everybody was was thrilled. So okay, this this is what we wanted. The, these scripts look right, and then we saw the storyboards. And, and the, the storyboards, storyboards are beautiful, right. and, and they, they 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 busted their ass making them wonderful. They you know those artists worked themselves to death, and then we had heard the the vo the recordings. We'd heard the bad one, and, you know, they did a bad one originally, but then we heard the good recordings. So we'd heard all the elements of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you never know until you see the animation, but we felt fairly confident that it was going to be pretty sharp. And to be honest, we were already, when it came out, when, when there was a final version in October to really look at and to, 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 to love, we were two months into another job. Into on ExoSquad. So the bunch of us, all of us creative people, were heads down on episode six of another project. And they let us see it, and we were thrilled. But it's like, okay, I took two hours off to look at this, and that was cool. Thank God it didn't, it wasn't bad. Now let's get back to, you know, our deadlines. And I, I'm going to, I keep jumping in with this one point that I make again and again, is that you were only told 13 episodes for X-Men. Yeah. There was absolutely no there was no conscious thought that it was going to be big and big enough to carry on to episodes two through five. It was just, okay, Eric. Maybe season. Season, sorry, seasons. Saying, okay, you've got 13 episodes to tell the best stories you can based on X-Men. Here's the material. Come up with the absolute best episodes you can. And then goodbye. <laughs> it's like, we weren't on staff at Fox. No, none of us were on we, staff. We, yeah, we, we hoped it would get picked up again, but there was really... Really, no, no commitment. What's I mean, I said certainly no legal commitment, which so, which shocked the Fox people. Margaret thought we were on like most people, like for five years, if they if they wanted us, and uh, the Saban who hired us had written in the contracts. We we you know they had to hire us all, and some of us couldn't come back. 
you know, for, 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 for a while. And some of the folks couldn't get back off of new shows they were on for a while. So that was a little bit of a hiccup. Mm-hmm. But that was, it. you know, realize it's it, it, in the olden days, before that, say in the, in the 80s, the standard here was animation people would work really hard for about eight or nine months. And they'd get the shows done by September, mm-hmm. the 1st of September, and then they'd be let go. And they'd be hired back in January, February, when a new show sold. So the so the the networks would pick up all the new sh- shows for the fall, say in January, February. They staff up. Everybody'd work for seven or eight months, and then people be let go. And it just was. It was kind of a, uh, a people were used to used to that. And then syndication started, and there suddenly they would order sixty five episodes of. Uh, Transformers or GoBots or whatever, He-Man, and people working year-round. But for when I first got in business, January of '85, people were used to seasonal layoffs, which is not not a not a happy way to live. But it's it's what was offered. Welcome to the freelance universe. Yeah. You know, that's just the way it goes. But when the first two episodes played. Yeah. yeah, we were on to other projects, which is there's your irony, you know, not really a chance to just sit back and savor. Yeah. But we sure did. We, we were thrilled at the success of um, the, the apparent success yeah. of, then, of and, the show's reception. And then Julia got a show on CBS, uh, um, Skeleton Warriors, Skeleton pretty soon Warriors. after that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, people were kind of torn to the winds, but they'd, they'd come back. Everybody sure. wanted to work on X-Men every chance they could. And just, again, to clarify my role, I, I'm uh, on this show, X-Men, I, I was a writer of specific episodes, and I got to pitch ideas, and that became episodes, and I got to be in on, I was there as a writer on all the story meetings and stuff. And we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. I just, I just want to finish this thought, and then we'll go on to the how, how the writing came about, if that's okay. Um, in the book, you talk about the poo sex. Uh, <laughs> when I read that, I had to read it about five times to basically understand what you meant. And then it finally clicked in when it finally hit me. What was that all about? Can you explain? That? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, I, I, I can't help. Uh, I'm going to refill my water bottle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ex- people that make television, and I think it's the worst in kids' television. But they're all sorts of have all sorts of interests in why they're doing it. They think they can make a bunch of money. They've got a product to sell. They have other executives to impress. That you know, whatever it is, whatever their ambitions are, a lot of times they don't come to, and, and they may have great power in 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 making the show. Their their decisions may end up uh, being the ones that are listened to. So you get into these initial meetings on a, on a series. Uh, you try to get people's uh, attention by just saying uh, there's a sh- there are certain things about storytelling that are important that you can't let slide. That that if you if you're just worried about product placement or you're just worried about maximizing the action or whatever it is you think makes a successful show, those things are all not important. You know what's important are the characters and. Uh, and you establish the characters through their voices. And, and they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, okay, well, 
example is GI Joe didn't do it very well because you have like six six Joes and they all sound the same. And if you're a writer, you're sitting there pulling your hair out saying, I'm trying to tell a story and they have a scene who gets which dialogue. You don't know because any one of them could have said any one of the lines and that becomes very frustrating when you just start choosing at random and throwing darts at a dartboard to decide who says what to who. Um, he says that in the strongest TV shows that stick in your mind forever, you know, Star Trek, Friends, I just the two that always the, that I use in the book and that I always use for executives because they're so starkly different are Winnie the Pooh and Sex in the City. I said, okay, you wonder what we're doing, you know, why we're spending this time developing all these characters in detail and making them so different. Uh, it's because those are the shows you remember. If you're a Sex in the City fan and someone says a line of dialogue, you know it's a Miranda or you know it's uh, Carrie. a Carrie. The other one couldn't have said it. It's just not in their nature to have said it. They are such different people. Uh, you know, the six friends are such different people that they can't say each other's dialogue. It just it's not. So those those are fully fully imagined characters with full voices, and that's and whoever we're pitching to, that's that's what we're pitching the show about. I want and we once had a at an executive, at, I think it was the WB somewhere, just stare at us and because you know, they were looking at development. We said, so why are, why do all these characters? You know, aren't they all friends? Why are they? You know, why are they arguing so much? You know, don't they like each other? And, you know, you want to hold your hat <laughs> and say, you know, okay, it's drama. They have to be different. They have to be at odds. They have to rub up against each other. And so the more different you make them, like in, you know, like in Winnie the Pooh or Pooh or Tigger or Owl or... Kangaroo. None of them sound the least bit like the other. They are so much individuals and so much unique characters that that's that's what we're working on that's what you're paying us the money to make your show better you already have you already have the vehicles and the weapons you know you already have you already have the the planet with the three moons and the basic you know what they're fighting over what you don't have is why we should care about any of these six or eight characters and that's what we should spend our time sweating over and then that brings me to writing uh, X-Men, the animated series, because uh, you the you were able to tell stories with certain voices each episode. You were able to tell a story from the perspective of Storm, from the perspective of Jubilee, from the perspective of Wolverine, Cyclops, and so on and so forth. As a writer, Julia, was it hard to pitch something to your husband and say, here's the story I want to do. Do you think it would work from this perspective? That's interesting. That's interesting. Because uh, part of it was just, being, I got to write an episode of the first season, which could have been the only season. And that one was uh, the, one of the very few that had been uh, based on, was a direct descendant from the comic books. But as that was getting crafted, it's like, well, we don't know if we're going to get approval from Marvel. I'm talking about Days of Future Past Parts 1 and 2. We had to change it so radically because Kitty Pride was not a part of the show at this point. Mm. And so uh, at, at that stage, more uh, first season, it was more getting the assignment and figuring it out how to, that wasn't something I'd come up with in a pitch. Whereas the rest of the seasons, 
things like um, Able to Pitch Beauty and the Beast that then went to uh, writer Stephanie Matheson, who did such a fabulous job with that. But it was fun uh, bouncing ideas off each other. I, you know, I can specifically yeah. remember that, being in a room with folks yeah. and just having fun doing that. And, and just deciding, okay, this one has to feel like a Beast story in a way that none of the others... We, we didn't usually have that much time for Beast. Uh, believe it or not, he was not considered a main character. You probably saw in the book when when the sh when we all agreed on that first meeting who the lead cast were going to be. It was so good. We kept using him and using him and using him a little bit. So we said, okay, we need to give him a full show and have it feel like it's coming from him. And I think all the writers got you know all the writers got that. We we tended to have fairly sophisticated older. Uh, it was a weird combination. We had veterans that were, you know, in their 40s, and we had people who it was, it was their first show. That's true. So we, we had a weird mixture. But those of us that were deciding on the shows had been through a couple dozen series before, and so we knew how important it was to 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 make the characters stand out and make oh this is a this is going to be a Scott show from beginning to end. Right. You know, when he's, he's grieving over Gene and he leaves the X-Men and, and goes back to his orphanage. So all those things were, okay, we, we, it's, it's kind of obvious in retrospect, but okay, we're going to do a really heavy Scott show and let him emote. Uh, what are we going to do? First of all, he's grieving over Gene. He leaves the X-Men. Where does he go? He goes to the hometown orphanage because he was an orphan and, yeah, it's a hard knock. Yes. Hard knock. No worries. Here. Yeah, we, we got. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to. <laughs> there you go. I will cut this out. Oh, yeah. So, so Scott. And so, so, a Scott story. So, so we just, we just, you know, in building the scenes and building the 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 conflict and what what he had to deal with, uh, we uh, made him. I mean, we made made it as Scott centric as we could. And that was, that was a hard thing that some executives would be very unhappy with, but that was a hard thing. We, when you made something that much of a Scott episode, you basically moved the other seven or eight main people off screen for, if not all the episode, almost all the episode. And we did that a number of times we, where we wanted to make it intensely one person's or two people's story and everybody else just, they were off fighting somebody. Or, you know, you touch base with them for 15 seconds and then Xavier would say, oh, well, they're busy. You know, continue on with your with your struggle. And they let us do that. They let us isolate characters like that to give them – because it's hard getting a lot in 22 minutes. Mm -hmm. And if you're allowed to do that with a the character, then it makes for better stories. If you're allowed to do it in, in – you know, to let other people take vacation for a while and you don't really see them. Now, one of the uh, with the days of future past that you were, worked on, Julia, um, we have seen incarnations of that on the big movie screen. Um, mm -hmm. And when that came out uh, with the new movie, uh, Days of Future Past, people referred to the old X-Men series, X-Men, the animated series to say you need to do it justice because the X-Men, uh, the animated series is the standard bearer of what you need to do. And then people are let down. Did you find that because you written that storyline, it was a comic beforehand, people would say you need to do it justice because it was so well received in the comics? 
You know, oh, that's yeah, we interesting. Did. We did. That was we were we were a little a little nervous. That was the only thing we were nervous about the first season. But again, this is in the in the age before internet was even available. There was no social media going on, so you. But that first season of X Men. Thank God. Thank, yeah, there there weren't there weren't leaks. There weren't rumors. There wasn't like a a, a fight on the Twitterverse saying, "Oh my God, did you hear they're going to make X Men into a cartoon?" You know that wasn't happening. Thank the God. <laughs> so what we were our our conscious focus at that time was trying to how do we make this into the coolest half hour animated show we can do, and that gave us a lot of personal flexibility versus thinking, oh my God, we're going to get killed because we don't have Kitty Pride in this. We can't tell this story. That wasn't on, that wasn't yeah. in our heads at that point. Yeah, luckily, Thankfully. Yeah, there, there were a couple of things that made it a little easier. I mean, because the, the, obviously there was, we had people from Marvel that were looking over this and they had varied expectations for the other episodes, but for this one, obviously the expectations were up. Um, but we were told at the beginning by, uh, Bob Harris, who's, who's just a wonderful guy, who was our advisor from Marvel, uh, and he's in charge of all of the X-Men uh, comics at the time. And there were three or four different series going. He said, look, there's been 30 years of these stories. There have been 29 different X-Men. They've gone in different directions. They've been good. They've been bad. They've been in the gray area. You know, And we're doing three different comics now, which have different tones and different focuses and different slightly different histories, he said, uh, as long as you've got the spirit of the thing right, you know, don't worry about being, about canon. Don't worry about, you know, does this fit in with the, you know, the three issues that came out in 1971 that touch on a similar issue. Just, you know, make sure that you've got the characters and the intent and the tone of, of our world right and if if there had just been one series, if there's been a short series of of books and there wasn't, then I think it might have been harder because there just would have been one way to think of Professor Xavier, one way to think of Jean, or one way to think of Rogue versus, well, they've taken her in six different directions over the years. So we like direction two for this story. And so, or or you know, we're building on direction two in the series. We had we had a certain amount of leeway as far as as choosing what we liked and what we wanted to use and what we didn't want to use from the history of the characters. And that was just because there was so much of it. And and, and we had this understanding from Marvel, thank God, that 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 they weren't looking for literal translations. And that's the thing too that people are oh, I'm sorry, that that um, it's very gratifying when people say, My gosh, the the series was so faithful to the X-Men comics. But if you get down to the sort of granular, granular level, uh, most of the stories were, were created, were, yeah, they were created whole cloth for the animated series. Sure, there are elements probably from all kinds of different places in the, in the comic books themselves, but very few of them were actual direct adaptations in, versus, uh, well, what's the coolest story for this character and then how that got built, built up. So that I think speaks highly to uh, the the respect that was paid, you know, uh, early on, and trying to get the characters right and trying to get their world right, that it feels that way to fans. So when you got that call that you were getting picked up for a second season, a you must be happy because mm -hmm. you, you you didn't expect this. You were expecting a thirteen episode run. Um, was it a little daunting 
because you had done such an amazing job on season one. Now everyone was expecting you to hit it out of the park again. Or were you comfortable enough to say, you know what, we're, we can do this. Oh, well, to be, to be honest, uh, it was, we had a real creative struggle during season one where we had a number of people with various interests in the show that wanted the show to be very different and wanted to be younger or sillier or more ch childish or childlike or just not what not what we thought the show needed to be. And so there were great there was a certain amount of fighting going on. Uh, we really believed in our vision for the show from day one because we had support from half a dozen people that really knew the books. I mean, our our art people did, our production people did. Uh, our, our guy, you know, again, the guy at Marvel was behind us 100%. But uh, it, the day was, you know, the day we found out we had a second season because, you know, say three episodes had played and they were, it's a huge hit and everybody loves it. And okay, it's right, it's right, it's wonderful. Um, up until that moment, we hadn't proved ourselves. And so there, we were still getting second guests and still getting whisper campaigns like, yeah. Uh, are you sure, you know, if, if you can survive this first, you know, badly focused season, maybe if you let me step in and change the show from what Eric and what all these other people have been doing, maybe I can make it better. There were the, those those pressures and those rumors and anxious uh, advertisers and anxious television people saying, you know, what are you doing? Uh with this adult show kid, no kid is going to watch this. Mm -hmm. And so when kids did watch it, then as opposed to thinking, Oh, geez, we have a hit. How can we do it again? It's like we were, we felt so relieved and so vindicated that that gave us a huge amount of, of uh, confidence, probably almost to the point of arrogance where we said, well, we wrote the show we wanted to do. Let's do that again. And I mean, the whole world seems to love this. Let's just do that again. And now we felt a little more, uh, actually a little more freedom because we'd laid the, the, down the pipe, laid the foundation for this strange world. It's a fairly complicated world to set up and introduce everybody. And here's this bad guy and here's this good guy and here's how they all work together. And here's how mutants are treated. And okay, boom, okay, you've done 13. Mark Edens, who who did like five or six of the first 13 and laid out the rest with me, he actually grumbled once in one of our panels. He said, yeah, that first season was, was the hardest. After that, you got to have more fun with the characters. Like you got to do Storm in Africa. You got to do Beast Falling in Love. You got to do all these fun personal stories that now that you really know Beast and you really know Storm and what they mean to the X-Men, it allows you to tell a personal story. If you told the storm story in episode three, you wouldn't have cared that much about, oh, well, she's got a godson and he's in danger. Now it's episode 14, 15. The second season is actually, was more fun, was, mm -hmm. was, was like an explosion of, you know, we've been proved right because we got all the criticism and all <laughs> the pushback and all the second guessing stopped the minute the ratings came in and that's so that was like okay now, now we can have more fun with this but first obviously we were having some fun but it was really hard work the first season to prove ourselves and now that was going to be fun so that was 
there was a, there was an anxiety on our part on the second season. It was all right. <laughs> Let's just that now we can just write and not and not fight anymore. And now with season two, you are now coming out while comic books are coming out at the same time. So yeah. was there a conscious effort to say, you know what? We need to, no one can read any comic books that are coming out right now because we want them to, we want this to be a separate entity. And when people look at the animated series compared to the comics, we don't want people to be confused. That's very interesting. Yeah, well, Bob, Bob Harris, uh, who, again, who was the guy, the poor guy, who's probably doing 75 hours a week on the comic, on the comic, on the three series of X-Men books and reading our stuff to make sure, you know, that we were staying in line. Uh, he was very aware, you know, they plan their stuff out uh, 12, 18 months in advance, like just, just like we, I mean, we, we had to do a whole season of stuff. So he was very aware of the stories they were telling in the books. And we were, as soon as we could, could we would give him, we gave him like all 13 story ideas for the second season, like, you know, within a week, like, boom, here's what we want to do the second season. How... Does this work for you, Bob? Is there anything weird here? Is this is this so he knew what we were doing with the characters and the teams were different enough um, that I guess um, we did. I don't remember. I'm sure there were times when we stepped on their toes and they said, oh, no, don't do that. We're doing it. Or no, that that feels well, oh, the, the 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 wedding. Right. The, at and end of the first season, uh, they propose and they're going to get married, Scott, Scott and Jean. And that, and we, and we, Mark and I laid it out where they're going to, when the second season, they're going to be married and she's going to be seven months pregnant and they're going to have a double mutant child. And we got the word from Marvel, not so much that they were planning to do that, although they ended up doing that later, you know, a couple of years later. But it's like, no, no, this. Seven months pregnant and spandex is too weird for our our core audience. This is not what, necessarily what we're looking for. So we we adjusted that and made the made it a false wedding. But most of the time, our it's it's like where the way they balance having different books with different timelines, they were pretty comfortable with what we were doing with the stories. And again, Marvel was based in New York at that time, and everything else was happening out here in Los Angeles. So even though it seems, well, what does that mean? Well, it means you had to fax everything or, or literally mail it to them. You know, they, there was no instant communication unless you picked up the phone and called someone. And so. also there was a very weird situation which never happened today. But Marvel was in financial trouble. They were a small company. They were about, they were sliding towards bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't had much, much success at all. They hadn't had any movies from their books. Uh, and they, and the, the TV shows they had were kind of hit misfires, you know, that they like hit and miss and did okay. I guess like the live action Hulk was probably their most successful one. But most of the time, it really wasn't working for them. And they weren't making sales. So just the fact they had a show on TV, that was money to them. And they saw it was a hit. And so they realized, oh my God, this is, this is, this is a merchandising thing. But the point is, when they signed the deal with Fox to do the show, they gave Fox final cut. Yeah. So when push came to shove, if we, if Fox through me said, we really want to tell the story and we're leaving the stuff in, Marvel had to say, okay, you know, we didn't want that. We hated that idea. But if it's that important to you, you have final cut, we'll shut up. 
which Marvel will never do again in its life. (laughs) They are now in charge of every breath, every Marvel character Mm -hmm. takes in every fashion. But at the time, it was Fox's show, not Marvel's show. Well, and on top of that, after season two or during season two, Fox greenlit numerous other Marvel shows to piggyback onto X-Men, the animated series. Right. So at that time, do does Fox start coming to you and saying, okay, we love what you're doing, but we want you to integrate some of the other shows into your show to cross-promote? You Obviously think not, so. You would, you would have thought that would have happened. No. In fact, if anything, uh, the, the, the purse strings were kind of tightened. I don't mean financially, but... The uh, I don't think X-Men really got to do a crossover on X-Men no, we, with anybody else, they, which they, was weird. And they were very, I guess Marvel made some tough choices like selling off Spider-Man rights and Captain America rights. And when they were struggling financially, they were very nervous about us showing anybody in the X-Men show that wasn't pre-approved. We had to, right. we had, it took a couple of weeks of asking, can we show Captain America? And that had to go up and down their their legal system before we could do that. And that was for the episode Old Soldiers. Yeah. And that was written by Len Wein, the fellow who was the, the Crea- co-creator of Wolverine. Yeah. But but that got passed through. Yeah. You got to do that episode because it was Len Wein but, but writing if, that episode. But if we'd asked, can we have Spider-Man in there? Can we have the Fantastic Four? Can we have Thor? Can we have the Silver Surfer? They would have said no. No, it's... In fact, we got hit with that on, on another series in a, in a very... In in a worse way, when when we we had a chance to do the Avengers uh, a season of the Avengers back in the nineties, and it was a weird thing where Marvel was trying to hold back all their big characters, and so it was like, oh, we can do we doing the Avengers, yeah. Huh. So I get to write Captain America. No, we're holding him off for his own series. Thor. No, we're holding him off for his own series. Um, the Hulk. No, we're holding him off for his own series. So like, the Iron Man. No, we're the the first six Avengers were not available, yeah. so it was like we got to do the Avengers B team, yeah. And nobody who loved the Avengers knew what the hell was going on with this show. Yeah. It just it just was wrong, mm-hmm. and it all came down to the fact that they, for some silly reason, or maybe there's a legal reason they couldn't, but for some silly reason they were holding back their six main stars from that show to use them other places instead of the brilliant idea of all the overlap which they're doing now, which uh, you know any fan would say is the coolest thing in the world, but their executives at the time said, "No, no, you can't, you can't use these people because we're saving them for another show, and we have to keep the, the, them distinct." But if you're an eagle-eyed fan of X-Men: The Animated Series, you may have spotted uh, a few uh, cameos. In, in, yeah. All over the place. That's Larry Houston doing that. First, you see Black Panther sitting somewhere. You see The Watcher. Doctor Strange is in like seven different ways. Thor makes it in there. Yeah, yeah. Thor is but, in there in, in an but episode. But that was all Larry being the big fanboy that he was saying, okay, if we got to have like mutant here, we got to populate the background, we're going to do it with yeah, these people. But he, he, he but he couldn't, but we couldn't call them by their names because mm-hmm. then the attorneys would say, take this character out. He just had to say Norseman standing on building and he drew it as Thor but when the people read over the script the, Thor's name wasn't on it and so, the storyboards were in black and white uh, yeah so. <laughs> so, no looked at them and so all those all those things got but they those cameos got through illegally they, they weren't <laughs> supposed to get through 
they, you know, it was, it was mischievous artists. But I, I think it makes the whole show a richer experience. But you didn't have to be a fan to enjoy the show. If you were a fan of X-Men and you saw those characters, that was really neat, you know. But if you didn't know who those characters were, it didn't in any way, you know, take away from the show, from the stories. Because I ask, because when I when you watch other animated series that came out, like Spider-Man, yeah. X-Men would appear in that show. So you would assume that Fox was trying to get them into your show as well. That was a late, that was, those were episodes like 50 something of Spider-Man. Yeah. And the, that all came about because the story, story editor, showrunner, um, John Semper, John Semper, um, friend of ours, he asked, and he, it, it, again, it took about a month of arm twisting and say, look, the show's excellence already on your network. Marvel, why, why can't you, please, please let us have a crossover with some of the X-Men characters. And they hemmed and they hawed and they said, okay. And so uh, Mike Leedens, who's worked on a bunch of shows with us, including Mummy's Alive, and I sat down with their writers, and they'd already set out, the, basically laid out the story, but did the dialogue for all the all the X-Men characters for for them in that that two-part uh, Spider-Man episode. Now, uh, we're, we're running out of time here, so I want to just uh, recap here. Season five. Season yeah. five uh, went, yeah, what happened? I, I, in numerous interviews you give, you, you state that's where the wheels fell off the sort of uh, the train in some sense. Uh, what was going on? Was it because of the bankruptcy at Marvel uh, that was right at the same time that was going on? Or was it a little bit more manhandling from Fox or what? It was money all the way around, and yeah. I mean the reduction of money all the way around. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it's unfortunate. Margaret Lesh had control of the first four seasons. And for season five, she had been bought out, moved aside. Yeah. Uh, Haim Saban at, at season five now had control over Fox's uh, Saturday morning. Yeah. He, he owned it and that so so season five is what the whole series would have looked like if Haim had been in charge of the budgets from the beginning mm -hmm. and so he just immediately chopped a third out of the budget and said it's crazy it was just it was just 11 episodes and we were not as you if you read the book we thought we were gonna be done with episode 65 and we're writing to that and all of those were basically produced at, at, at the proper level and then uh and then for some reason they added on an 11 at the end. Never heard why. They added on five and then six. Or yeah, six. yeah. It was they like didn't a, even add on 11. Yeah, added five, added on six like a month later. But not even a full 13 yeah, episode and, order. And for those, they just, they they sent them to cheaper animation houses. They 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 asked, you know, they had the designs simplified. Oh it gosh. was just, uh, in, in a new book, we're coming out with <laughs> uh, the art of X-Men, the animated series. Um, in October, uh, which is a coffee table book with uh, lots and lots of artwork in it, uh, with, Mar with Marvel and Disney's backing this time. Mm -hmm. um, you can see, you can just look and see, okay, here are, the, here are the designs for the first four seasons, and here are the incredibly simplified designs that are cheaper to animate for the fifth season. And there were two or three decent stories in there. Yes. So, I mean, there's no excuse for our, our story writing to suffer uh, and I still think that the finale, um, uh, yeah. graduation day, 
going back, uh, the four part of Beyond Good and Evil, right? Was where it was, where was, where it was, was going to end. So there's, but, but the, the 10 11 since uh, passed that, they and really didn't put the money into the it. The graduation day, I think, still holds up as a, as a fitting tribute and a cap to the series. Yeah. And so it just was, it was, it was, it was a shame. It was like, it was like we finished and then we hadn't finished. And then they want us to do another season and. But not a full season. But not, and, and they're not going to give us the budget and they're not going to, and the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it just was, well, we'll be good soldiers and we'll do the last 11, but. Many of the artists were disheartened by this and, yeah. and had left the show yeah, that yeah. because of that. Half the art staff was gone. And yeah, everyone, the folks, everyone was trying, like you said, trying to be a good soldier and, and get the job done, but it, it, it was money. Yeah, and, and the cast was the same, but yeah. uh, it's, who we love, they're yeah. fantastic. Yeah, those they're, they're wonderful people, but yeah, it's just, also they they changed the post production people in the last one, the ones that that would do you know previously on X Men and also would cut the the series. There's real, they're wonderful. Uh, um, my mind just went. Not for us. Uh, no, no, our uh, uh, Sharon Janice. Yeah, Sharon Janice and Scott. And handsome Scott Thomas. Scott uh, Thomas <laughs> were in charge of post-production of the first 65 episodes, and they weren't there for the last season. Yeah. And so they just had somebody who kind of, you know, threw them together and cut them together. And so the pacing wasn't quite there. The audio isn't there. Like the audio the isn't there. They cut back on the effects, sound effects. Special effects. All sorts on. of things. They even redid the opening music a little bit for the last season, which just sucked. The opening music's like the best thing in the show. <laughs> And they they probably redid it because they shared the rights to the the previous performance. If they redid it, they'd get more money. Yeah. Because if the people that redid it got all the rights, every time episode sixty six through seventy six plays, they get the money off of that music, even though it's inferior. So that's all sorts of decisions were made like yeah. that. That had nothing to do with the quality of the show, but just shows you. The, the luck involved in getting the right people on a show and getting the right people making decisions and and putting the money up because yeah. it's their money, it's their show, and if they want to do it in stick figures, that's their business. And we have no control over that. So that's kind of what we got in season five. But here we are a few years later, and you're still remembering the show fondly, and we're still looking back fondly. So that's, we're very happy about well, that. And what does that tell you about that show during that time? Was it, was it uh, impressive that you were able to make such an impact on children's lives that is expanding into 2020? So the crazy thing for me was astounding. we didn't know. We knew the show was a hit. But again, we, you know, the internet was a different place. We weren't getting the, the feedback like you might get now. We I was aware. We weren't going to Comic Cons. We, we weren't, were being, yeah. you know, it's just all we knew is it was a very successful show. And, and, it, they, it and they showed it all over the world. Right. They just, Fox just just really pushed it everywhere. Which was neat, but we so, didn't know. We're so the last, the last 10 years of our lives, we've bumped into so many people from Brazil or Thailand. Australia. Or, you know, we're huge Malaysia. in Australia. But, you know, in Singapore, was, oh, you don't understand. That was my show when I was growing up. It changed my life. Those kind of moments, we had no idea that was happening out there. If you're a performing artist, you get that immediately. If you touch a chord in people, they clap, they they cry, they they ooh and ah in front of you. If you're writing the stories, 
you know, you're handing in the stories, you're getting on to the next job, and you get zero of that. Writing is isolating enough, you know, and then to be a writer on something that has so many other people involved, you, it, you're kind of, you're just removed from that. But it's been cool going to cons it's the last two or three years since the book came out and having, you know, 1,500 people in an auditorium just, you know, screaming and yelling and explaining and or coming up and buying the book and saying how much the show meant to them. That, that's been the eye-opener, and that's been the gift that keeps on giving with this particular show for, for us, because we weren't in that world. Again, X-Men, the animated series, was kind of the, the child of an ugly divorce, because Marvel was going bankrupt, rights were being sold off here. This, so it never had the full continual support like, say, Batman with Warner Brothers or Paramount with Star Trek. There was none of that, and it right. wasn't until you came out with the book that we got a chance to go out and... And meet those people and see that, and that's been huge, huge. Yeah. And you give your and you give so much time to your fans. I find that so fascinating that you're willing to do shows like this. The, the I've listened to many episodes of podcasts that you've been on. You've written the book. You go to the comic cons. Why why give back so much? Wow, that's a very that's a very sweet and generous question. My gosh. Well, the fact that I've done something attached to anything that has had that kind of impact on people. You're talking to a gal who grew up in Texas, you know, it's like, this is a dream. This is a dream come true. You know, and, and Eric and I tease each other when we met out here in Los Angeles, you know, we, each of us were independently hardcore Star Trek original series fans. Again, back for the internet, it's like, oh, you think, you know, Star Trek. Okay. What happened in this episode? You know, we were <laughs> kind of doing that thing with each other. And it's, so I know what that is. Yeah, we I know what that is to have that moment in your life where you say, oh, my God, I see something that's touched me so deeply. Yeah. And to be any part of anything on the other side of that is just it's yeah, a, gift. a book, a movie, a series anything. that is that was just that was my thing. And that was that was how I identified myself. I mean, we didn't have cosplay when I was growing up, <laughs> but uh, we would have, you know, we would have dressed up. Oh uh, you know, in Star Trek cosplay, if, if, yeah. if it were available, to have have something that is that un, unerasable inside us that we know now is in tens of millions of people from something from stories we wrote. I mean, it was just it was our job. It was our nine to five. True, but and, with our passion. But yes, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And and yet, workaday world. And we cared about it. But you know, we cared about dozens of other shows we've worked on and people have appreciated them in at small measure or larger measure or maybe not at all and we realize some of them we've done just really aren't what they could have been uh for various reasons uh some of it our fault some of it not but this one it all magically mysteriously came together and we see it in people's eyes we see it hear it in their voices and it's just this undeniably special thing that just really isn't it's the one thing that we've done in our lives that had that that mysterious connection to the rest of the world and that's just so cool it's i mean it's it's, it's fun talking to people about it and uh, I, I hope we don't get too repetitious but you yeah. know <laughs> the telling of the tale but it, it's a pleasure it's to talk it's gratifying to talk about it it's a it's a real pleasure to do that well, thank you I'm glad. And uh, previously on X-Men was an amazing read. I learned so much. I, uh, the cast interviews that you did, talking yeah. to the cast members, talking to the writers, talking to the directors was so fascinating to hear their side of the story and the fact that you had never met half of these people to do it. 
ever. And here we are uh, again, Canada. Oh, Canada, the voice talent, all of them there, and the nicest people. Yeah. And that's that's been also just odd and gratifying that we've gotten to meet them in the last couple of years. Yeah. Meet them for the first time ever. Yeah. How'd that happen? But yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and for them, there was a similar kind of thing. The vast majority of them, it, it worked for everybody, for the, the, the voices and the artists uh, and producers. This was that show. This was the one that everybody keeps asking them about. Um, and so it wasn't just it wasn't just us writers. It was all these people, you know, yeah. people that may have worked on 40 or 50 or 60 different series. And this is the one that stick that sticks with people. And so that's just that yeah, it makes it special to talk about it. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much. All right. And if you're ever down in Los Angeles, if or if, if, we we ever, if we ever if anybody ever travels ever again. If we're ever allowed into Canada. That's <laughs> true. If you're ever in Canada and come to Calgary Comic Con, I want this sign. Today. <laughs> there you go. You, you got it. That, we're 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 can I can I put in a quick pitch though? Uh, hopefully, Calgary Comic Con in the future. Uh, we do have a new book coming out. He wasn't kidding about that. This, um, this episode airs in November, so it's going to be coming right, right afterwards. So let's talk about your new book. <laughs> yeah, it's it, you can check it on on Amazon or on Abrams Publishing, which is the publisher. just in just in time for Christmas and for all your holidays. And it'll tell you all about it. There are even a couple sample pages from it on the on the Amazon site. And it is all about. Literally the art of the animated series. And we, got, you know, we had to dig through some dusty old basements to try to find. Because again, this was pre-computer. Everything here everything was, was hand-drawn, and they've thrown away ninety-eight percent of yeah. it. So we were able to find some stuff. There's stuff out there in the wild still, but we found things that I didn't know existed in the first place. And uh, it's, called? it's called X-Men: The Art and Making of the Animated Series. Well, I will look forward to it. I'm looking forward to buying it and getting it out there. It'll oh. be the perfect companion piece, I swear to God, because it is it's a coffee table book that's yeah. just art. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's, great. it's maybe 15% as much text as in that book, but like 1,200 images. Yeah, perfect. beautiful perfect. color, full color. Well, once again, Eric and Julia, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it, and have yourself an excellent rest of the day. You too. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to Tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye.